for survival when an enemy world hurtles toward a doomed Earth in Battle of the Worlds. Our spaceships are decimated when the invading planet's insurmountable pull of gravity begins a shattering cosmic destruction. Only one scientific mind can stop the stellar holocaust. Your days are numbered. I prefer that you speak before the United Commission. He alone knows there are only 80 days to live, and he must convince the world of this threatening catastrophe. Can he find a formula that will save the Earth? Feel the torment of desperate passions as men and women live the last panic-filled hours of love in history's final chapter. Heroic astronauts brave the cold and lifeless void of space as they prepare for battle when the enemy's super-electronic brain launches a surprise attack of its awesome flying saucers. They're overtaking us. maneuver freely but to win they must land on the foreboding crust of the hostile planet and destroy forever the soulless power of its monstrous hidden brain starring Claude Rains in his most challenging role a prophetic motion picture five years in the making you must see Welcome to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and tonight with me is... John Hudson. Back for the first time since December of last year for the uh, Holiday Horrors episode. Yeah, and I would have sworn we got together since then, but apparently not, because you have better records than I do. <laughs> yeah, really, I have, the, I have the podcast. We've we've seen each other, but it's been at various and sundry dinners or yeah. play, out and about places, but not to sit down and talk about a movie. Uh, we did talk about movies when we ran into each other out and about. Oh, well, yeah, how can we avoid that? That's just the way things happen. Well, yeah. What, are, what else are we going to talk about? Our feelings? Emotions? No. <laughs> of course not. I, I don't know. That's ridiculous. And you don't need to know about my inner thoughts, trust me. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, I know. The, the, the stuff on the surface is bad enough. True. I'm perfectly happy with knowing what I know about you. Yeah. But folks, this is by sheer accident... <laughs> The 100th episode. There is no way I'm a good enough planner or strategist to actually arrange for the 100th episode to be some kind of, I don't know, round table of four or five different people where we discuss our our deep innermost feelings about some obscure movie. No, 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 no. It's just another episode, but I hope we can make it good. I know the chances are, are slim. I'd say very slim. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so the odds go way down. They go down. They, they plummet to the floor. But... Tonight, folks, for the first time in, uh, God, almost six months, I think, we return to the thread of shows about Maestro Antonio Margheriti and his movies. We're jerking ourselves all the way back to the early 60s, to one of his very first, as a matter of fact, his second, I do believe his second, science fiction films. Uh, He was a rarity in the 60s in that he was making science fiction films. That uh, was always a pricey and dicey concern. Uh, It was not something that a lot of people leapt at because of the the price tag involved. Usually you had to have a studio backing. But Margariti, he was an outsider, man. He was an outsider. And we'll get to more conversation about that later. But Mr. Hudson, we haven't talked nearly enough in a while. What have you been up to? 
Oh, not a lot. Just living life, petting puppies. Petting yeah. puppies? No, not really. Oh, I was about to say, you're a cat guy. Well, I like puppies too, but we don't have any. We got yeah. we have two two cats that terrorize the house most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. Actually, if they're awake, they're terrorizing. <laughs> have you seen anything interesting lately that I would be aware of? Um, well, I have seen a couple of things that were interesting, actually, and both closely related. Um, I've seen the long cut of Dr. Sleep. Which I've not seen yet. I've seen the theatrical cut. I thought it was a fantastic film, but I hear the longer cut is even better. I would assume it is. I haven't seen the theatrical cut, but looking at the long cut, I don't know what they could trim out of it to make a shorter version. There's still no fat on it. It's nearly three hours long, and it just zooms by. Well, that's how I felt about the theatrical cut, which I know was over two hours. I think this longer director's cut is like 35 minutes longer, Mm -hmm. and... um, that, that believe me, that's fine with me because the movie as it stood, I mean, it's yeah, it zips by quickly. And I had read the book, mm-hmm. and I knew that what uh, what uh, Mike Flanagan, the writer director, had set himself up for was a really really problematic thing, which is to adapt the sequel novel, which is a sequel to just the novel, and try to make it an adaptation of the novel. That's also a sequel to Kubrick's film. Right, because you can't do that book because most people who are going to go to the movie are going to want to see a sequel to the film. Exactly. So, But he did a fantastic job of making them both work. I thought it yeah. was brilliant. There, well, you've, you've read the book, too, so there's still some streamlining. There's no way not to with yeah. with as much as is in that book. But I yeah. was impressed with his streamlining, too. Oh, same here. He knew what to dump and what to keep, and he also knew when he needed to emphasize certain things. That mm-hmm. He was he was very good at this. He was. You know, com- there are some places where two characters were combined into one yeah. seamlessly. Um, yeah, I thought it was just great. Mike Flanagan continues to impress me. His uh, his previous uh, King adaptation, uh, Gerald's Game. Yeah, that was, was good phenomenal, too. phenomenal. And that was one of those really I, I thought would be almost unfilmable. unfilmable. Yes. It's like, how are you going to make this interesting for an hour and a half? Yeah, well, you hire two exceptional actors, mm-hmm. and then you hire Mike Flanagan. <laughs> That's and what you a do. dog. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Man. It's such a well done movie. That yeah. that was a really well done movie. I've heard some complaining about how the uh, the ending kind of over explains some things, and I, I'm sorry, but I didn't feel that way. I didn't so. either. I because didn't either. I, I felt that I felt that the end was on a, a, a near perfect button to that mm-hmm. to that story. But uh, yeah, Mike Flanagan Flanagan just continues to impress. Uh, Absentia and Hush. And he's made a couple of others. I think he's made at least one other horror film that I've yet to see. He's just He's an exceptional filmmaker. Yeah, and Hush, really and, and I'm going to show my ignorance here, but Hush is that the one where the uh, the deaf woman is terrorized? Yes. The, yeah, that was I didn't realize that was my film. That was great too. Again. Yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense because yeah, that was a heck of a movie. He, uh, I forgot. He he also did Oculus, which was phenomenal, and then um, he did that uh, adaptation of the Haunting of Hill House for uh, Netflix, which I still haven't watched. Oh yeah, that's really good too. And he did. This is the first, this is the only time I can say that I did this. He did a sequel to the film Ouija, and I never I've still never seen Ouija, but I actually went out to the theaters and saw his sequel because it was a prequel, and I was like, okay, maybe I don't need to know anything about. It. And his sequel, Ouija: Origin of Evil, it was really good. Yeah, okay, I'll have to look at that because I saw about ten minutes of the first one, 
and that was enough. And I'm not one yeah. to give up on a movie. Once I start, I'm yeah. committed to it. Well, are you sure it's Ouija and not because they did like there were all these copycat things that put Ouija in their title right That's around true, the time because that, came that out. word you can do. Yeah, yeah. It was the one that played in theaters. Okay, well then th- that would have to be it. But like I say, I've still never seen the first film. Don't. But I saw I just his remake or his re- well, not remake his his sequel slash yeah. prequel. And it's like because because by that time I'd seen Absentia, Oculus, and Hush, and I was like, you know, this this guy's really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let me let me see what he's done here, and I, I even liked it. But yeah, Gerald's Game and Doctor Sleep, man, just exceptional stuff. And I uh, I look very much forward to whatever he he's got something that's announced for uh, for next year called Halloran, and I have no idea what that is, but. Uh, We'll see. It's got a $45 million budget. That's all I can find out about yeah. it. But I'll I'll be up for it. I didn't realize. As always, you actually do research for this show. <laughs> I try to, yes. Yeah, I try to, but of course I didn't research what we were going to talk about off the cuff. Oh, no, so no, no. I'm pretty I'm, poor on that. Off the cuff. It's it, Here's the thing. I can retain so much fairly useless movie knowledge in my mm-hmm. head. And then there are really important things that just drop right out. Almost instantaneously. I wouldn't know a thing about that. Yeah, I have that bad. I wouldn't know a thing at all about that. Um, but I did, uh, I did, uh, we spoke earlier and I wanted to say that uh, we saw the new film, The Invisible Man, and it is exceptional. Uh, Lee Wan L uh, is turning out to be uh, really a talented filmmaker. And I still haven't seen Upgrade, which you have good things to say yeah, about. Yeah, it's good. Everything yeah. you've heard that's positive, I'll back up. It was a really fun movie. I need to check out Upgrade because. Uh, the Invisible Man was really impressive, mm-hmm. and uh, I heard some people speaking about the. Said if you've seen the trailer and you think you know how this film is going to play out, and <laughs> yeah, you don't. You don't really have any idea. Well, you know, I'm a sucker for anything with invisibility in it, and um, <laughs> I, well, I'm just, and I also love Elizabeth Moss and yes. anything that she is in. She's a very talented actress. Um, um, my interest level goes way up. Um, did you see? Her Smell, the movie that she was in a couple years ago. No, I have no idea what that is. She plays sort of a Courtney Lovish grunge singer. Oh, I heard about this. Who's who's kind of a jerk and is always getting... Basically, she's got such a personality problem, she's constantly getting in her own way with collaborators. Yeah, she's sort of past her prime and trying to hang on and got all kinds of issues. And yeah, it's really good if you have a chance to see that. Well, see, I know Elizabeth Moss from having watched her... Over the course of you know what was it seven seasons of Mad Men and just being mm-hmm. super impressed by oh, yeah. what she was able to bring to that character and what you know the writers of course allowed her to do because that character moves and grows so much mm-hmm. over that period of time and uh, yeah she's uh, I mean yeah she's in almost I would say it's really close to every scene in The Invisible Man because of the way the film is structured mm-hmm. and uh, and you've really <laughs> did that. I know actors, you know, kind of love a challenge, and they, they, but at the same time, that that level of challenge, holy crap! But she's very good, and the film is quite good. I was, well, I like her. I have to um, have to take the misses to that one. She's also a big um, a big fan of hers, and she likes a good a good scary show. It's a uh, uh, it's scary. It's suspenseful. It has uh, some some real twists and turns. It has a, it has some surprises that there is just no way to see coming. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very well written. I love the direction, the sound design. Well, first of all, you're dealing with a movie that's built on a level of kind of paranoia and suspense. Mm-hmm. So especially for the first half, the sound design really helps the film 
get across a lot of kind of the the paranoia and some of the the fear that Moss's character is feeling. It's really it's it's well done. But this is not a podcast about the Invisible Man. We will talk about that later as we talk about another Invisible Man. And actually, though, I do have one other thing which will I'll clumsily segue into the topic at hand. <laughs> but but uh, I mentioned that there's two things that I've been watching and that were related. We've been watching The Outsider, the HBO oh, series yeah. based on the Stephen King book, The Outsider. Okay. And um, it's been really good, too. In fact, the as we record this, the last episode has aired a day or two ago, and I haven't had a chance to see it I thought it, it was yet. a Netflix thing. No, it's an HBO. Oh, it, okay. Yeah. Okay. Every time I think I'm about to drop HBO... They'll come up with something else. <laughs> well, damn it! Now I got to see that. Now I'm committed for another twelve weeks. <laughs> These jerks. They keep it coming. You know, I had it for the deuce. I wanted to see that, and it started with the Deadwood movie. I got I yeah, picked HBO yeah. back up. Then oh, well, I'll, I'll watch the deuce. I can just I'll just get through the final season. I'll watch the others as we go, yeah. and then the Outsider starts. So I'm sure there's something else about to to drop that I'm going to want to see. But yeah, the Outsiders. <laughs> uh, I don't want to give anything away um, at all if you haven't read the book. Uh-huh. But it's it's really good, um, really enjoyable, um, just really fun. And King, when he was a, as a writer, I never gave up on him. But he he went through a pretty rough patch of books there. Uh, yeah, he did. Especially, it's, also, it's known as uh, the late '80s and the '90s. Yeah, and then there's yeah. after the van accident where he got yeah. hit. I think his books really went into sort of a painkiller area where yeah. But the, I tried I tried to read Cell and it was a disaster. Oh, it was awful, yeah. just awful. Ugh. But late, and I had really kind of, I kept buying them and would occasionally read one that was okay. Like Gerald's Game was good. You know, there would be a few that was like, okay, this one's okay, this one's not. But the last few books have been really pretty good. The Outsider was good. The um, well, I read Doctor Sleep and it was it was really good. I, yeah, it was, was really yeah. good. The trilogy that started with Mister Mercedes, all three of those are. Oh, I read. Yeah, actually, I did read Mister Mercedes, but I've not read the sequels. Mister Mercedes was very good. That's true. And the series, the Mister Mercedes series, season one, I haven't seen the others, but season one was a fantastic adaptation. I've heard good things about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, King King is doing okay so far. Um, I haven't read the new one. Um, I forget the name of it now. The Institute. Haven't read that yet. Is that the one he co-wrote with his son? That was Sleeping Beauties, which okay. was also good. Okay. Uh, not as good as the others, but it was, but it was, it was good. I mean, the books have been really solid lately. They've actually been enjoyable, which I can't say about some of the books. Yeah, I remember I would dip back into King's King's output in the '90s, and I remember reading. Uh, Insomnia and thinking it was a good book up until a certain point, about two thirds of the way through, where it suddenly felt as if he remembered, "Oh, I got to end this fucker." Mm-hmm. And the last third of it, shit just comes out of left field, and the damn thing changes into something else, and then ends. And I was just like, "Okay, what in the hell happened here?" Mm-hmm. But uh, this is also not the Stephen King podcast. Well, I, I was just going to say that Under the Dome, the book <laughs> Under the Dome was a pretty good book. I read, but that. I thought the ending was god awful. What? But how, how else could it end? That's true. It's like, I well, mean, seriously. I it, mean, it was, by that point, what else could it be? Yeah, I guess so. It was really stupid, but it was an ending. I mean, yeah, I'll, it I'll was essentially it the Squire of Gothos. I'll grant yeah. you that. But, but anyway, if, you, if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll understand what I mean. That's right. And, and you know there are some... What nerds these people would have to be to know that. <laughs> to but, know Star Trek? But anyway, um, we're, this is the Stephen King podcast, but I will say that I recommend The Outsider... And okay. our movie tonight also has an outsider. Oh! <laughs> yes, indeed. And by the way, uh, before we leave that whole concept behind completely, 
I do want to remind people that there is a documentary called The Outsider that is about Antonio Margariti's career. It's about an hour long. And uh, it, it, when I saw it, it was still on Amazon Prime. I don't know that if it's I don't know if it's still there. It was an excellent little hour long documentary that kind of gives you the highlights of uh, Margariti's career. And of course, it was called The Outsider, which is taken from this movie, which is how the uh, the meteor is described, or the planet that uh, enters our solar system as a rogue planet uh, was is described in this week's movie or this month's movie, whatever in this podcast, but also. Uh, they used that term to describe him because, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what he was to the uh, the Italian film, film industry. Uh, an outsider. Not like the S.E. Hinton novel. That's not what I'm talking about. This is something completely different. Right. But then again, this is not the S.E. Hinton podcast either. <laughs> right on, pony I'm, boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm the wrong person. I'm the wrong person to do that podcast. Luckily, I am the right person to start talking about Antonio Margariti. So... Hang on, folks. Uh, we'll get back to you in just a second, and we will start talking about this film, which is called Battle of the Worlds from 1961. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction, horror, and fantasy movies, but how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century? Hi, my name's Terry Frost, and I do the Martian Drive-In Podcast, a podcast where I look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century. I look at fantasy, horror, and science fiction, and talk about them, sometimes with a guest, sometimes by myself, but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar, if it was ever on your radar. So go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or type Martian Drive-In Podcast into iTunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk. And keep watching the skies. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator And I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now, we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com. For show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. Steel. I know all about it. I don't understand what you mean, Professor. I'm talking about the reason that brings you here. Wake up, young fella. 
I'm talking about the outsider. The outsider? It's all written there. Battle of the Worlds, 1961 Italian science fiction film directed by Antonio Margheriti. And uh, like I say, I believe this was uh, Margheriti's second science fiction film after uh, Assignment Outer Space. Uh, as someone who's seen Assignment Outer Space, let me anti-recommend seeing that movie. <laughs> uh, yes, this is the, cla- the classic non-recommend, anti-recommend. Assignment Outer Space is, uh, it is a science fiction movie. It is also... Truly boring. Uh, I did. A, I wrote a review of it on the blog back years ago when I first saw it, and I, I entitled the review uh, "Operation Boredom" because, who, it's just man, it's slow and dull. And let's just say that Battle of the Worlds is a step up from there. And to point out that I am not the only one who feels that way about that about this particular movie, Battle of the Worlds, nineteen sixty one. Uh, I'm going to read the, re- the review of it in the classic Phil Hardy Overlook Film Encyclopedia of Science Fiction Films. Because let's consult the sacred let's, text. <laughs> yes, shall we lie open the giant movie Bible of Phil Hardy? He says, or whoever actually wrote this review, because I doubt Phil Hardy had the ability to write every review in this giant tome, this is one of Margariti's most humorous, inventive, and stylish films effortlessly transcending the crudities of the script, the acting, and the special effects. See, that's the slap and tickle. That's, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the... I will, I will compliment you. And now, by the way, <laughs> Professor Benson, that's Claude Rains, ridicules the claims of his colleagues that a meteorite is about to collide with the Earth. He has proved right when the thing stops and appears to launch flying saucers against the Earth. The film is too wordy, and Reigns appears to be the only one capable of enjoying his role. Its success is less it, is uh, its success lies less in Margarita's intelligently ironic treatment of cliches, politicians, and military pundits than in the deliriously stylized setting, uncannily beautiful and garish at the same time, culminating in the images of uh, the dead alien world, which is all swirling colors, weird machines, insanely fantastic spaces and lines. The film is an object lesson in how to let cinema triumph over both script and acting, allowing visual style and imagination to carry their own corrosively fascinating meanings. The result is an astonishing piece of cinema which dwarfs all pseudo-philosophic moralizing about mankind and the world. Whoever wrote this is very enthusiastic about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, more enthusiastic about it than me, even though I do like it. Uh, because I think that if I was going to name one of Margarita's science fiction films to go, Woohoohoo, I love it. It's going to be Wild Wild Planet from a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. But Battle of the Worlds is a pretty damn good movie. And I do agree that uh, the film sports one great performance, and it is Claude Rains. Everybody else is... Wooden? At best, okay. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, and, of course, a lot of that has to do, I think, with everybody's problem with working through the fact that they're all going to be dubbed. So well, Yeah, and that's one thing I always take with a big grain of salt with these movies. Is yeah. Because with the dubbing, you don't know what the performances were like. And, although I will say that some of the performances in this, like in some performances from Italian films of this type, no matter what you do, there, there is that point where you realize that someone is in this film 
because they knew somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there may be a relative of somebody else, and we'll never know because all of the names are pseudonyms, and we'll never figure out who was related to who or who they stuck a costume on and got in front of the camera to say that one line badly. And we'll just go from there. But the reason I wanted to go back and, and get back into a couple of his uh, 60 science fiction films is, first, I find them interesting, even when they're not great. I get a big kick out of them. It's a weird sense of nostalgia for a, a type of cinema that was really deeply of its time. I mean, the, the films and the way they look that were made in that period... Uh, I'd say starting in the late 50s all the way up through the late 60s, there's this amazing look to them that we really can't ever recapture. There are some fun things that are that recapture the look of them out of a sense of nostalgia, like uh, something like CQ, the, that great little uh, great little film that uh, takes place in the 60s, and it's kind of a part of the story is uh, the main character is in Italy helping to make a science fiction film kind of like this and kind of like, you know, kind of like Barbarella mm-hmm. crossed with uh, Danger Diabolic and stuff like that. But the, uh, and they, they have a few sections in CQ that, that are recreating the look of this kind of movie at the time. And that's, that's all sweet and good, but there's something that is unique about whatever it was, whatever was in the water and also just kind of what was in the zeitgeist, what people thought of as science fiction at the time and the way things should look. Um, we, can't, we are never going to really go back to that because by the late 60s, we were moving away from the concept of, uh, and Star Trek was a big part of that, we're moving away from the concept of the rocket ship as the main design for the, the, the things that were going to take us to other worlds. So these movies up through the late 60s are the last kind of last gasp of that type of uh, spacecraft as a vision of the future. Uh, anytime now you're going to, you see anything that looks like a, a rocket ship from, you know, rocket ship XM or destination moon or any of it, you know, three dozen science fiction films from uh, the fifties or sixties, it's always going to be a retro thing. It's something people are looking back at with some nostalgia and kind of using that design to indicate that we're also going to be adopting some of the more, strange ideas that were believed mm-hmm. to be factual at the same time and that's this is our visual uh our visual cue to the audience that okay we're not we're not actually going for a scientific accuracy we're going for something that is a bit more of a heightened reality yeah, it gets sort of a pulpier yeah flavor doing that exactly this is uh this is stuff right off the covers of pulp science fiction magazines from the 30s 40s and 50s uh, uh pulp uh well, I wouldn't even call them pulp, but just like the the Heinlein uh, juvenile novels, like Red Planet and stuff like mm-hmm. that. These are the kind of things that uh, dreams were made of. To be honest, these are the kinds of things that made uh, little kids stand up and take notice, and uh, were automatic signatures of the kinds of stories that were automatically going to interest kids, especially boys of a certain age and under. So, which is that's still that way today? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> These films still just mainly interest boys. They're just older now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Women and girls will go along with it, but you know, it's not really. Yeah. It, it, Although we've come a long way. Did you ever think you would see the day when? Well, actually, this happened at uh, my office not too long ago. A lot of the. Girls and or women, I should say, although they're girls to me, they're half my age. But <laughs> the women in the audit department were having a big discussion because that weekend they were going to get together and watch um, the uh, Avengers Endgame yeah. on Blu-ray. 
and I'm and I just I never thought I would see the day <laughs> where the big thing that a bunch of these women in their twenties were were planning was was to, a superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> so we've made some progress. Yeah, I gotta say, well, it's it, the 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 comic book fan, uh, the the geek fandom has kind of overtaken a big chunk of of the modern cinema world and uh, of course that means that it's now part of the mainstream which means that it's now something that people bitch moan and complain about mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you know I don't mind and, and, and I don't mind it people bitch moan and complain explain that you've never seen a Marvel movie and you can't imagine why anybody would want to see a movie that involved you know Batman go right mm-hmm. ahead I don't give a fuck because until they run this shit into the ground and start making them all shitty instead of just the occasional shitty one guess where I'm gonna be yep I'm going to be sitting in a the theater watching these damn things because these are the movies that I dreamed of when I was a, a eight-year-old, a ten-year-old, a twelve-year-old. Oh yeah, I mean, I think just yesterday or maybe even today, I saw on the internet, which means it's true, that it was the—I <laughs> forget what anniversary it was of the first, the thirty-five years or something of the first episode of The Incredible Hulk. Oh okay, maybe more than maybe I don't know how many—a bunch of years. And I remember thinking at the time, this is incredible. Wow, this is great. <laughs> remember the, wow. uh, the lame-ass television version of Spider-Man, which is as good as we could get at the time? Oh, yeah. It was, it was, like, I mean, it was not good, but it was a little better than the Electric Company version, which was... Yeah, yeah. I'll, gra- I'll grant you that. Yeah, that uh, was the first ever live-action Spider-Man was on the Electric Company. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do remember. And, uh, yeah, it was lame. And then the TV version with Nicholas Hammond, that was that was lame. That too. was lame as well, yeah, but yeah. you know it was a little better. And we did have that one episode with Joanna Cameron. You know, ISIS was in a bikini. So oh, really, yeah, I have. I must search the internet. <laughs> well, that's that's good. I have now. I now have a goal for after See, we're I, done with the show. I found a reason to like that show. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, Battle of the Worlds. Um, this was made before Margariti got the uh, deal with MGM to make the uh, the four back-to-back science fiction films of which Wild Wild Planet was one. We've only covered War of the War of the Planets uh, here doing this series of shows, but we'll have to one day sit down and talk about Wild Wild Planet, which is my my favorite of that uh, that set of four science fiction movies that he he spent next to nothing on from MGM. <laughs> uh, what we ought to talk about that one in Snow Devils. Snow Devils is uh, actually pretty darn good. Although I, I used to, I when I was when I was younger, when I first saw Snow Devils on uh, like TNT or TBS or something like this in the early '90s, I was I thought clearly this is the worst of the four. And then it's like, no, at least it, it, it's it's not as boring as like War of the Planets because War of the Planets kind of drags out a little too long. At least uh, at least you got weird, funky uh, aliens in Snow Devils. But in this film, do we have weird, funky aliens? I don't know. We don't really need them. We've got. Claude Rains, so <laughs> we're all good there. <laughs> Before I ask you your opinion, so I tell you what, let's we'll, let's use the the Wikipedia plot to kind of guide us through the story. And I've got a few things to, I've got a few things to point out along the way. As do I. Got just a couple. Uh, and I think we should we should point out that this is not a film that uh, is commercially available in a particularly great way. The way we caught it. There is what is labeled an HD version of this that is up on a couple of places on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I do not think that it is an HD version. I, it didn't look to be. Uh, and it also, it could use a remaster. There's nothing really wrong with the print, but it looks to be looks to me to be something, uh, something that's pulled from 
uh, probably a digital print, but uh, not a pr not a film print that was actually remastered or cleaned up for uh, video release. Uh, I would love to see this movie get some kind of decent actual uh, video release, but I don't know of one. But this was okay. I mean, if, if as a couple of guys who I know have sat through plenty of VHS bootlegs, yes, way back when, this would have been perfectly fine. I, I, I sat through. A Crappy VHS bootleg just two weeks ago. So trust okay. me. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'll sit through. Uh, I'll sit through a crappy looking print for something I don't want to see. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that this is a movie that, um, especially toward the end, this is a movie that I think would it would benefit heavily from a nice remastered HD version. Just because, yeah, the, you know they didn't spend a shit ton of money on this movie, but what they accomplish, especially in that final third, especially this fast, the last twenty minutes of the movie, I think would look really exceptional if we got a, a really great print of it. I mean, this this print on YouTube still looks good, but it just it just shows me that, man, there's there's a, a, there's an even better look. We oh, I agree. This, you know? I agree. Anyway, I think that if we had some nice bright colors popping off yeah. the screen, I think would help a lot. True. But, but True. if you do want to see it on YouTube, it's not bad. You're not going to... No. And it's not a... You're it's not, not going to go too wrong. Yeah, it's not a trimmed down version. It's the whole picture. And I think... I think... It's worth your time. But let's get to the let's get to the plot. Right. Amazing. How did you do it? Young fellow, you and the others have to see and hear before you can know. I have one advantage over all of you. Calculus. However, I'm glad to see that you at least know how to read it. In spite of the disdain in which I hold all your stupid and dull mechanical apparatuses. Do you think that I don't examine carefully the readings that you send me? The difference is that you accept those readings as results. Whereas for me, they are merely elements in a formula. I have been aware of this thing for the last five days. And I have been curiously awaiting to see when the rest of you would discover it. It was only just before dawn that we were able to... Oh, so you didn't see it until just before dawn. And didn't any one of you notice the change of position of the two outer planets? Change of position? Infinitesimal. It merely heralded the arrival of the outsider. Why do you call it the outsider? Because it comes from another galaxy. It simply entered the solar system during the night. None of the other observatories have reported it yet. They couldn't. They don't have powerful enough instruments. That's what Dr. Cornfield maintains. Ah, yes. How very interesting. I'm sorry to hear that I have an opinion that is shared by your Dr. Cornfield. What the devil are you staring at? Get away from me. I can take care of this. Anyway, it's all there. Diameter, dimension, speed, and course of the outsider. Now you keep your trap shut with the others and get out of here. Battle of the Worlds, 1961. Dr. Fred Steele, who's played by Umberto Orsini who's at least an Italian using his actual Italian name, and Eve Barnett, uh, no relation to me, played by Maya Brent, work together at an, an, at an astronomical station on a bucolic island. It is a beautiful place because the movie opens... This is a science fiction movie. Okay, you get the titles and you get Battle of the Worlds. And it's against the backdrop of this beautiful 
obvious, you know, like it looks like a Mediterranean uh, seascape, mm-hmm. and these this uh, beautiful woman in a, in a in a in a white bathing suit going, you know, going down the the cliffside to the man who's swimming in the in the uh, ocean waters, and that's a really nice sequence too. Yeah, and it's and it's beautiful, but it's, it's like a good start. And you get off to this start where it's like, yes, this is a science fiction film, but. We're planet side. We're you know we're clearly on Earth here. We're we're placing ourselves in the position where we start out on Earth and then we're going to you know the story is going to advance us along. This is this is uh this is cool because this is uh, also saves money. <laughs> this, this saves money. Uh, but at any rate, Dr. Fred Steele and Eve Barnett work together at an astronomical station on a bucolic island. Steele has just had his request for a transfer approved, and he and Eve look forward to leaving the island and getting married. However, their budding romance is quickly put on hold as the station's scientists learn that they must deal with a rogue planet. Pl- rogue planet. I can't speak. They dub it the Outsider. This and rogue planet has entered the solar system and is on a collision course with Earth. Dun, dun, dun. And at this point, we we glossed over ah, what one of the best characters in the film, Mrs. Collins. <laughs> When she showed up uh, originally, I thought, "Oh, well, this must be one of the aliens." I, I, I'll be honest. If I didn't know it was a science fiction movie, I would have assumed she was a witch. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> she's clearly from another world because no human <laughs> behaves like this. Mrs. Collins, I, I don't, I don't, I don't remember if Mrs. Collins gets a mention in this in this plot synopsis, but. She's an interesting character. Uh, she is my favorite Mrs. Collins sequences right around the point in the movie that we're discussing. Yeah. Where this, she's, can I do anything? You can get me some of your incredible coffee. And she literally slides open a little door, pulls out a thermos, and hands it to the guy. <laughs> I thought, wow. She worked hard on that coffee. <laughs> I do not know much of anything about the actress. Carol Danielle. Or Danielle. I don't know much about her at all, but I do know that she only appeared on screen in three movies. Now think about that. We, having seen this movie, have seen a third of her filmography. Okay? Wow. Yeah. Uh, she so was she's in, the James Dean, the female James Dean of, of Italy then, is what you're saying. They had left an indelible mark. <laughs> an indelible mark. But here's the weird thing. Actually, she's also, well, not, well, she was also, she was, the, the other films she was in, uh, well, she was only in one other film called Return of Django, and then she was in uh, an episode of a TV series, an Italian TV series. But she's obviously better known as, a, as uh, some kind of musician or a singer because she does. she's uh, got credits for several other movies as part of the soundtrack or in the music department. She uh, uh, either wrote the lyrics for a song in one movie. She wrote a song called A Gringo Like Me in a film called Hot Rod, uh, she uh, has a, a, voc- a vocal soloist credit for a movie called A, a Thousand and One Nights from 1968. Uh, she composed the song When Are You Wanted for a film called Wanted from 1967. So I have the sneaking suspicion that she was much more comfortable as a musician, a composer, than she was on screen. But she has got such a weird vibe. Now I kind of, I really kind of got to see... Uh, Return of Django. Well, looking at, and we're cheating here, we're looking at the IMDb. She's yeah. uncredited as a saloon girl, so I doubt you'd I see doubt her. She's, yeah, and I also doubt that she's really going to have much of a, I mean, she may not even have any dialogue in the film. Well, but Honestly, earlier when you were saying that some people were in this movie because they 
must have known somebody. She's the first person I thought of. <laughs> exactly. It's such a weird... Well, first of all, it's a weird performance. And she has... I mean, she's in several scenes of the movie. Mm-hmm. She's never the central character in any of these scenes. And it is weird that we're talking about her, except that she kind of stands out. It's this she weird... Is, it's character. just so strange. And you never know what she does. Yeah. Except coffee. Get, yeah, except get coffee. She, she does coffee in another scene as she seems, well. She, 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 she seems to run errands. Yeah, she's and, the Mrs. Olsen of the film. <laughs> oh, God. There's a... People, if you don't know what that's a reference to, count yourself lucky you're younger than us. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, at any rate. You must help me, Mrs. Collins. Me? Some very strong coffee, please. I'll get some right away. Hurry up, Fred. Let's go to the radio section. I'll bet the other observatories have reported something. Don't forget, Reynolds, that we have the most powerful equipment in the world. What's happening, Reynolds? Something terrible. Uh, the brilliant but cantankerous Professor Benson, who's played by Claude Rains, looking remarkably like Harry Carey, the baseball announcer. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if I can go. Well, those glasses. Oh, man. He you're really right. does. Yeah, those glasses. He does that. look a little bit like Harry Carey. Luckily, hey. luckily, he still does sound like Claude Rains. That, yeah. That awesome true. baritone voice. Mm-hmm. We don't have to. It's it, the, He's got one of the most identifiable voices, I swear. I mean, that, there's a reason that he was, there's a reason he was cast in his first major film as someone who's not even on screen. I mm-hmm. mean, he's got such a great voice and he's so good at it. And having, having spent so much time on the stage, and this is a guy who's obviously trained for, you know, decades at this point to know exactly how to pitch and modulate his voice in such a way for maximum effect. And of course, thank God what we're hearing in the English dub is actually his voice. Yes, yes indeed, because going back to his first film, of course, his voice steals the show. And yeah. again, you know you know how much I love... You invisible know, things? Invisible things that can steal the show, but he's great in that. I, I, I was actually thinking about it as I watched it. I think my favorite Claude Rains performance was in Notorious. Yeah, he's, he's phenomenal. Yeah, that that, yeah, that's probably my favorite role. But he's, he's fun in this. I wouldn't say this is his best performance ever, but he, no. he seems to have a pretty good time chomping on the scenery. He is having a hell of a time. As for what I would... What my favorite Claude Rains performance would be, man, that's a tough one there. Um, Notorious might be, might be his best performance. When I think of Claude Rains, though, I do think of him either in... I have to say, as as the you know the the police captain in Casablanca. Oh yeah, that's the first choice that came to my mind. Is of course he's great in that, obviously. And the uh, and the uh, somewhat disreputable politician in uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington because mm-hmm. he's also really good in that. But he's good. He's good in any role, and he's he's certainly he certainly elevates this film. Oh, a lot. Oh, yeah, a lot. But uh, God, that 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 voice. Thank goodness, because there have been so many movies. Uh, made during this period, during the entire decade of the 60s, where you have an identifiable good actor, somebody that actually is a is an above the the title actor that you're hiring because of of the draw that he'll have, uh, and then you watch the movie and their voice, their voice, their very identifiable voice is not in the English dub. They're not there, and it drives me bats. Uh, that that that's true of so many movies that Christopher Lee started in the '60s. It drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, my my favorite offender for that is uh, Baba's The Whip and the Body, where it's a great performance and a great film, but 
it's not Lee's voice. And the, it's a real problem because everybody knows what Christopher Lee sounds like. And it's not his it's not his voice. It drives me crazy. But luckily here, we do have Claude Rains' very fantastic voice. And his, he's... It's almost as if this is... It's almost as if he were an acting vampire in this movie. And if there were any more talent in the cast around him, he was just sucking it all up. <laughs> because there are so many dud performances in the movie around him. Mm-hmm. And, that is, and that is one of the major flaws of this movie is that... I don't know. They they hired one good actor, and it's as if they had to like you know hire planks to, to stand around him and, and mouth different lines of dialogue so that he had something to act against. And there are times at which I feel like he's he's getting more back from the dog, the, the, his, his character, his character's dog in the film at times, where it's just like, well, at least the dog seems enthusiastic. Yeah, he's having a good time. He's he's happy to be. Yeah, there are sequences where it's a. You're supposed to have this edge of your seat suspense, even, and the actors just don't seem that engaged in what's going on. I know, and it's 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 like then there's a point there there are points where it's a life or death situation, and there'll be a couple of different actors in the shot, and only one of them seems to be reacting properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like what are the what are the, are the rest of them like asleep the, with their eyes open? What's they happening just here? Didn't get coffee from Mrs. Collins. So. <laughs> yeah, I get they're not they're not awake. Uh well, at any rate, the brilliant but, can, but cantankerous. The brilliant but cantankerous Professor Benson. That would describe you as well, come to think of it. Uh, the cantankerous part. Cantankerous, yes. I don't know that brilliant ever comes anywhere near a description of me. But uh, So Professor Benson is living in an adjacent greenhouse with his dog Gideon, and he predicts that the outsider, this rogue planet, will not strike the Earth, but will simply make a close pass. A prediction that no other scientist will endorse. And uh, Benson goes way out on a limb here, and he's got a lot of nasty words for all these other asshole scientists. He's got cruel words indeed for a lot of these people who he considers fools and other words that you can get away with on screen in 1961. Yeah, he's got some great dialogue, which unfortunately I don't remember exactly now, but a lot of really nice little digs and backhanded insults in the form of another insult and... (laughs) There's some nice stuff for him. Yes, and he, he, he delivers it well. But meanwhile, a military base on Mars encounters the. Remember, we're in the future. All right, we got a military base on Mars. This is just you need to you need to roll with this, people. We're in the future. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, a military base on Mars encounters the stray planet on its approach to Earth, and Commander Robert Cole and his wife Kathy quickly travel to the island outpost from Mars to help with the effort. So, Commander Cole, who is played by actor Bill Carter, who also had a very short film career, I think of about a dozen movies, uh, he and his wife Kathy quickly travel to the island just to, uh, I don't know, to, to talk to Professor Benson. Because reasons. Right, exactly. The base scientists are elated when the outsider passes the Earth at a distance of 95,000 miles, just as Benson predicted. But Benson himself is stunned when the outsider takes up an orbit around Earth. This kind of freaks him out, and it makes him start to doubt whether or not he his calculations, his mathematical formulas were correct in trying to figure out what the hell this thing was going to do. He weirds out a little bit, and <laughs> it comes a point where Claude Rains is, is so good at getting across this kind of bereft feeling the characters is is going through that uh, there's a scene where he is talking to a, a kind of some world leaders on different computer screens inside inside this room and he uh, he get he 
tells people that he wants to be alone to have this conversation with these people and ushers all these other people out of the room. And uh, he's so, he, he, he looks and acts so, so down and depressed that I was like, is he going to kill himself? Is this, <laughs> is he just going to like, you know, say the hell with it and end his life here for having made this gargantuan error because this rogue planet just went into orbit around Earth? This is freaking him out. But uh, he concludes that the outsider must be controlled by an alien intelligence, and he calls upon the world's scientific governing council to destroy it without delay. And I have a couple things to interject oh, sure. here at the end of Act One. <laughs> Is that the end of Act One? Holy crap. Well, I'm going to say that it's the okay, end of Act you go One. Ahead. Because it's a good spot to throw a couple things in here before we get uh, too deep into it. First off, there are some really nice shots of some of the sets here. There, there's some great sets in this, and it makes me think that they had to have shot this at a real facility somewhere, because there's no way they had the money to build these giant rooms in some of the places where you see them. Yeah, they, I, I don't know. They may have been uh, sets from another film, but I'll be honest, I don't know. It's possibly, but... There, and there's particularly some really nice overhead shots um, that really yeah. stood out. Yeah. Um, you don't see them in a film of this budget, that often, something like that. There's some nice overhead setups. Oh uh, yeah, it's like a Johnny LaRue's crane shot. It's a uh, lot like in, <laughs> in <laughs> Polynesian town. Polynesian town. <laughs> but it, it it does it it is a good way if you've got a big space. Mm-hmm. It it is a good way to give the film a, a larger a larger uh, feel. It's a way to make everything seem bigger than it may actually be. Uh, there are a lot of tricks like that, depending on what, you know which lens you put on the camera and how you shoot and from what angle you mm-hmm. can make a a set. Because to a large degree, once once we're past the first part of the film, which takes place on Earth, uh, you're in a bunch of you know you're in you know, what are supposed to be bases and spacecraft and things of that nature, so that it's gonna be gonna be mostly kind of claustrophobic. So anything you can do to to open up the shots and make it look a little bit bigger. And more uh, impressive in a certain way. Mm-hmm. If you're a smart director, you try to do that because if you don't vary the shots, then it gets very visually dull. No matter how many blinking lights you may have on the wall or on a console, if you're not varying the shot types, then your eye starts to kind of get too used to the imagery, right. and you don't care anymore. You're not right. taking the information in well enough, and so. And Marguerite does a nice job of that of varying yeah. up the the shots and and the scenery. And one thing that I noticed at about this point in the film is there's a lot of scientific jargon thrown around, sometimes way too much. There's times where scenes go on too long because of that. But I thought that the the emphasis on sort of like really trying to explain this stuff scientifically and the tone, a lot of it, it started to remind me a lot of those early George Powell films. Like Destination Destination Moon Moon, and um, When Worlds Collide and films like that. And And it really started to get that kind of a feel to it, where we're seriously going to look at this. This isn't just a completely silly space opera. Well, yeah, and this is not... Uh, I mean, that's what those uh, those MGM science fiction movies that Margariti made a couple of years later, that's kind of really what they were. Those were much more cartoonish, mm-hmm. more, more of a comic book, you know, version of this stuff. And I have to say that, uh, that the uh, writer Matt Blake uh, wrote an excellent book called uh, Science Fiction Italian Style, and I have to say... He uh, makes kind of the same point that you're making there in his book about this movie. He says that uh, uh, this movie has the same downbeat feel as uh, his previous movie, Assignment Outer Space. Whereas American science fiction of the time was slick, pacey, and upbeat, these early Margariti films had had a tendency toward philosophizing and a languid, fatalistic viewpoint. 
There's way too much talking, which is a shame because in the last third it becomes increasingly exciting. And it also features a very European kind of humanism with the real villain being a general who is hell-bent on destroying the meteorite whatever the cost, whereas the aliens themselves are thoroughly harmless. It is essentially an alien invasion film in which the aliens never get to invade, something which would have been unlikely to have been made in Hollywood at the time. It makes it all the more interesting, and despite its B-movie credentials, it has a similar focus on the relationships between a group of protagonists facing their own imminent destruction to, to that which can be found in the contemporary works of J.G. Ballard, something like uh, his books uh, The Drowned World or The Crystal World. The characters are briefly but effectively sketched, although some of the claustrophobic atmosphere is lost when the events move out of the Research Institute. Uh, it's also the first time that the inside of an alien spacecraft was portrayed in Italian cinema. Hmm. Well, how about that? Yeah, I know. That's that's really kind of neat. Uh, yeah. Because uh, Margariti's direction, he says, is more assured than in Assignment's Outer Space, and the film benefits from using a wider variety of locations. The effects are satisfactory. Some of the spaceships are recycled from the previous film. And I, I, I will agree with this statement as well. He says, The film frequently has a discordant feel with sequences that feel slightly out of kilter with anything else. The scientists taking part in a very gothic seance. The witch-like administrator, Mrs. Collins, which we've already <laughs> talked about. Everyone watching the battle between the spacecraft on a TV, which is, which is really kind of strange. Uh, because it feels kind of like uh, watching people watch a video game at a certain mm-hmm. point. But the uh, point that Margariti, even this early as someone who's moving behind the camera as director as opposed to a, a special effects artist, uh, he, he believe me, <laughs> there is a jump in his ability as a director from Assignment Outer Space to this movie. And that's in just a couple of months because those movies, those, those movies were shot very, you know, not, not too far apart from each other. And, and, it, and, you know, there are some really nicely directed sequences in yeah. this. And even though the special effects were are pretty cheap. They are. But I think the, the shots where the, especially the saucers where they fly out in formation yes. and attack, I think those are really nicely done. And the way that they spin, it's sort of a Harryhausen on right. a budget sort of feel. I mean, that was really nice. And the formations that they use. Well, the, the, I was really impressed going back to watch this because it had been a few years since I had seen this that they are really doing their damnedest to recreate the look of the saucers from Earth versus the Exactly. Black That's what I thought as well. And then, of course, there is that, that fact that also, then in 1996, uh, Tim Burton's special effects people are recreating that very same look for Mars Attacks. You know, strange formations, the saucers and the, the look of them spinning, which mm-hmm. comes straight from Harryhausen's Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And it's just, it's neat. I'd completely forgotten that that was, you know, that this was another little detour of people taking that image and using it again. Pretty nice and pretty fun. Gentlemen. You have exactly 840 hours left in which to act. In the meantime, the outsider will be tightening its orbit around the Earth. It will descend to a distance of 45,000 miles from the Earth's surface, and then... What proofs do you have? You'll find them written there. I take it for granted you know how to read. Formulas have just been photographed. We will examine your hypothesis most attentively. This is no hypothesis. I tell you that the outsider 
in tightening its orbit around the Earth will provoke serious upsets in the balance of nature's elements. Changes of climate and oreography in vast zones of the globe. You're concerned about the fate of the human race. You're wrong, my dear sir. I am not moved by humanitarian motives. Well then, Professor Benson? I want to know the truth. What truth? That's hidden inside the nucleus of the outsider. I'll make you a deal. Benson, you explain yourself back. Find yourself to the heart of the matter. Please tell us, Professor Benson. I have already determined that deep within the outsider there are conscious beings who come from another galaxy. Fugitives, perhaps, from a dying world. Then, according to you, the outsider is a kind of survivor's raft. That's a colorful description, but it states the case. Well, against Benson's wishes, an expedition is launched to make a close study of this new planet that's in orbit around Earth. As the exploratory spacecraft approaches, a number of disc-shaped alien spaceships, as you were speaking of, emerge from beneath the planet's surface, destroying the Earth vessels. Now, that's a pretty tense sequence, I had to admit, because mm -hmm. I really, I don't know why, but I just really didn't think they were just going to off all those people in those spaceships. I really didn't think yeah, that was going to happen. Yeah, it kind of come, just like the saucers themselves, this, that sequence comes out of nowhere, and, it, and I think that's really a nice, a nice little chunk of the movie. I agree. This phantom planet begins spiraling inward toward Earth, creating hurricanes and storms. Unseen. <laughs> well, there's that. No, you mean you mean like the storms are unseen or what? Well, it's mostly off. It's like, hey, did you hear about that big storm? <laughs> well, all, well, there's all that. Uh, there's that uh, stock footage of of storms and stuff okay. like that, which is in black and white. So they they like put a they put like a red haze mm -hmm. over it, which is a really clever way to use black and white. Uh, stock footage, but you're giving the impression that this rogue planet is like creating this horrible glow. At yeah, the it's in uh, it's in Angry Red Planet vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> because the the movie's in color, mm -hmm. it's like, eh, how do you incorporate this stock footage? Yeah, it's black let's and do white. that. Uh, we'll tint it. We'll tint it. Uh, and it seems that the beginning of the end appears to be near because this, if keeps up, is going to destroy the planet. Oh yeah. Well, Professor Benson discovers that the alien ships are computer-controlled, and he devises a way to seize control of them, control of them from the outsider. From the outsider. Now, is, did they go on board the ships at this point, or did he? They they hadn't been inside. They hadn't one. been in, Okay, they, yeah. So Benson is given the opportunity to join an expedition to the outsider to learn something of its underground base. Meanwhile, a plan is hatched to launch an all-out attack against the planet in the hopes that a massive nuclear strike will break the planet apart. And hopefully not rain radioactive material down onto the planet Earth itself. That's me uh, adding kind of a, an additional piece of information there because... <sighs> yeah, it doesn't seem like the best plan. Well, here's the thing. I'm willing to give them the fact that in the early 60s, we were still in that phase of the nuclear age when people thought that it was possible to employ nuclear destructive capability that mm -hmm. was not going to bite you in the ass. Right. All you had to do is duck and cover. And yeah, yeah, we'll be, we'll be fine. We'll, you know, we'll take a couple showers. Everything mm -hmm. will be great. Oh, and that, and I just realized, I was trying to think, because I was remembering a sequence where they went inside one of the saucers. They captured one. Didn't they shoot one down? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. That's what it was, because before they went to the base, 
that's when they went in the bit where you were saying it was the first time you were inside a saucer. A saucer, yeah. A ship. And they captured it. They go in, and it's, and they say, well, where's the pilot? You know, where, where yeah. that's, and, you know, there's an obvious answer to where the pilot was while they couldn't see him. I know where you're going with this, you sack of shit. Yeah, well, I did an entire planet of invisible chimps. Yes, of course, of course. Or invisible men. No, it's chimps. And it could be invisible men. No. I mean, there's an invisible man in the movie. No, you can see him, but you can't see the <laughs> invisible chimps that were flying those saucers. Luckily, they were quiet. <laughs> they were quiet, so they went to the incorrect assumption ah, that they were yes. computer-controlled. Of course. But there was no feces being flung, so how could they know? It was invisible feces. It, it's, it can't even smell it. It's incredible. <laughs> Silent but deadly. Silent but deadly. Oh, God. I set myself up for that one. That's <laughs> fucking terrible. Oh, God. Okay. I was waiting for it. I knew that having a movie in which Claude Rains was the star, I wasn't going to avoid this. But now the pain has passed. It was like a pinprick. I'll move forward, you prick. Hey. <laughs> Now we have to decide. Are we going to ruin this film? Are we going to are we going to like give away the the cool factor of this movie, the the kind of last twenty minutes? Are we going to give away the what we find out about the the race of uh, creatures that uh, lived on this planet? Well, you kind of just did give it away. I guess I kind of did. All right, folks, this will not ruin the film for you because the last twenty minutes just they're 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 they're, they're blessed. They're fast and mm-hmm. they're pretty. They're beautifully. They're, there's lots of beautiful colors and the. The uh, the sets that they built for the inside of this the inside of this place on the on the planet. Anyway, let's 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 rush ahead. Yeah, Benson's expedition discovers a race of humanoid creatures dead at the controls of their planet spaceship. In other words, this thing isn't just a planet; it's actually an entire spacecraft built by this alien race. As the automated systems continue their work without purpose, but the expedition has overrun its allotted time, and the order is given to begin the attack. It is and, a race against time as the members of the expedition try to get back to the ship and, before the nuclear warhead strike. And I want to jump in here before, while we're on, rushing to the, fine, okay. the finish because this is a great sequence. And one thing that Margarita does through here that he wasn't really doing as well in the earlier is the camera. So you get a lot of those Dutch camera angles like yeah. from Batman. You, know, you get this sort of off-kilter, otherworldly feel inside the Outsider. Right. Which the set in there is fantastic. Yeah, it's all this. This, this is the tubing. part that really screams for bright colors. You I wish know. you could see it better. Although I do have to say, Claude Rains looks a little embarrassed in the spacesuit. <laughs> yes, yes, I, it had to be uncomfortable. There's just no way around it. Referring back to Matt Blake's comments about this movie, he says, uh, he says, he says, it is the first time that the inside of an alien spacecraft was portrayed in Italian cinema, bathed in red light. It has a metallic but rather psychedelic and strangely organic appearance, full of dangling tubes and mist populated by the mummified remains of spider-like creatures, all of which unfolds in a sequence which anticipates Mama's Planet of the Vampires. Which I didn't think of that at the time I was watching it, but that's exactly right. And it, it also reminded me of... and I'm. What was the name of the first Marguerite film that we watched? This first science fiction was... Uh, oh, uh, War, uh, War of the Planets. Yeah, which I, I was getting that one mixed up with this title. The titles are too similar. Yeah, now. but that film, Inside the Planet, had sort of the, a similar look or the, had those yes. things that looked like arteries and veins with right, the tubes. Right. And it reminded me of that as well. This almost seemed like a trial run in a way. In a way, although 
we we have a good print of that movie because uh, Warner Arch- Warner Archives has yeah. put that sucker out on a, on a decent DVD. Uh, man, I wish I, I don't know who owns the rights to release this film here in the states. I'd love to find out because I'd love to sign a petition to get somebody to put mm-hmm. this thing out because just to get a chance to look at this stuff, even if it was just a DVD. Because we have very little Margarita Blu-rays, and definitely very little Margarita Blu-ray of the science fictional type. Even uh, Warner's has put uh, uh, Green Slime, which isn't even a Margarita film, out on uh, on blue. And they have Wild Wild Planet and Snow Devils out on DVD, but they've not Blu-rayed either one of them. Man, I would love for them to put out a Blu-ray of Wild Wild Planet, or just do a set of any of the Margarita science fiction films that, they have. It's not too much of a reach based on some of the things that they have done. It could yeah. happen. It would be nice. Uh, but uh, this is uh, this is a really oddly downbeat ending to a film. Mm-hmm. Um, this is This is not a movie that has... Let's just say, if you had seen this as a youngster, as kind of a Saturday matinee, this is uh, this has got a downer of an ending that I don't think is going to send those kitties out, you know, into this into the afternoon sunlight with the desire to, you know, play <laughs> to play Battle of the Battle of the Worlds. I, I don't think that they're going to feel all that enthusiastic about. No, I'm Professor Benson. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do it. It's me. I'm the one that finds the dead aliens, and, then... so, and we should explain what happens at the uh, how the film ends up. Oh yeah, you're right because Benson refuses to leave. Uh, Kathy is uh, Kathy, who's along along with this on this uh, expedition inside the uh, the alien uh, sh- spacecraft planet. Uh, Kathy is w- mortally wounded in the attempt to flee the outsider, and that was a gut punch because they get her they get her out of there, and then she die- They realize she's dead once they get back mm-hmm. onto their spacecraft. Um, Benson refuses to leave, insisting that life without scientific knowledge is not worth living, uh, because he's trying he's trying to find a way to like figure out how to get the planet, you know, to take control of the planet so that it won't do what it's doing instead of being on automated pilot. Automated pilot, he sees a way to communicate with the outsider and program it to leave. But by then, it's too late. The warheads reach their target, and the outsider is successfully destroyed. As the exploratory ship returns to Earth, Commander Cole speaks Benson's epitaph. Poor Benson, if they'd opened up his chest, they would only find a formula where his heart should have been. And I gotta tell you, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, the man had so much empathy and so much desire to retain as much scientific information from this alien race as he could. He sacrificed his life attempting to save everyone else in a way that wasn't going to destroy this. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, he was... Yeah, he definitely was. He's the hero of the picture. Yeah. And then, of course, the very last shot, we finally get the animal cruelty that we're waiting for. (laughs) But it's psychological because (laughs) Professor Benson has died. And what do we see? His poor dog waiting for him to come home. I know. The end. (laughs) I know. That's the final shot. Kathy, Kathy dies. Benson dies as the as the planet's destroyed by nuclear weaponry. And then everybody's like, huh, well, he he was just he was just a, a mathematician, poor bastard. And then the dog is like, "Hey, where?" Hey, hey. I'm just sitting there going, "Oh my god, this thing has a gut punch at the end of it." Who the hell? Who the hell was going to sell this? Ah, like, uh, anyway, I'm glad they made the movie because I got. I don't think it's great, but I do think it's a solid film, and I think it's elevated by Claude Rains. It's elevated by uh, special effects that about two-thirds of the time are really cool. Mm-hmm. 
There's a third of the time when the special effects are early 1960s, you know, low-budget special effects. They're as good as they can be, but they're not great. But they really worked their asses off to sell this movie as effectively as they could. And, yeah, it's too talky. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of things we can talk about. The, film, the film's too talky. There's too much technobabble in spots where they're trying to sell the hard science aspect mm-hmm. of this. That was, that was something that, you know, started in the... Uh, in the early fifties, with films like you know the George like, Powell movie, yeah, that, that's about. really Destination Moon. I think is sort of where that yeah really took hold, and the and the, the idea of trying really hard to with the science fiction, you know, with, with the the scientific knowledge that we had at the time, trying to build science fiction that is as realistic as possible at the time. And you know, you can even go back to uh, uh, Fritz Lang's movie uh, Woman in the Moon, where they were trying really hard. They were trying as hard as possible at the time in nineteen twenty nine to construct a scientifically accurate idea of what it would be like to venture from the Earth to the Moon. Now, of course, you know, they got some things right and they got some things wrong. Same is true of Destination Moon. (laughs) The same is true of this. There are some things in this that are still true today, but honestly, by this time, some of the things that were being held on to to make cinema exciting, we knew at that point, we're not true. We're not mm-hmm. going to. We're not going to pan out as being actually realistic. But some of those things that we hold, that you hold on to because they're cinematically interesting or cinematically more intriguing than the reality of you know dead, cold, silent space. It's hard to make that exciting, and that's not what this is. This is uh, well. It starts off with thinking. Well, it's a science fiction mystery, right? Mm-hmm. It's got a, a touch of romance between some actors who, you know, can fitfully act. So some of that gets across. Not trying to be too cruel there. <laughs> Just a little bit of cruel. Uh, well, it's also cruel truth. Eh, it's yeah. true. But there are there are things, there are aspects of this movie that work very well. There are, there are aspects that don't work all that well at all. But overall, it's it's pretty good. It's yeah, and it really great. kicks in once those saucers come around the bend from behind yeah. the outsider. Then it really starts to get moving. Yeah, yeah. But this is this movie does have uh, a problem that crops up again and again in the uh, the science fiction films Marguerite made for MGM after this, which is there are times when people are talking about something and you kind of the, the the movie loses its way. It's as if. The people who are delivering the dialogue understand what they're trying to get across to the audience, but we're not getting it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost as if something got lost in translation, and that's really what it feels like sometimes. But I gotta say, every time Claude Rains is is declaiming on screen, everything snaps into focus, and that is it's good because luckily he's about he's on screen about sixty percent of the time, maybe even sixty five percent of the time. So. This is an effective movie. It's uh, light years ahead of the film he made right before this. You can see that up, upward swing. And like I say, a lot of this does fall on the shoulders of Claude Rains. And, you know, you hire a good actor and you let him do what he can do. But I don't think you've seen all of Margariti's science fiction films from oh, the 60s. nowhere near. So I, well, there's about seven of them, uh, I think. Six or seven? Like I say, Assignment Outer Space, I guarantee you, is going to bore you to death. Well, I know hopefully we'll get to it at our current pace. It'll be in about 15 years, but we'll get around to it. Yeah, we're not uh, we're not really burning up the we track. Always are we always promised to do more, but, but then you're again, so busy like, hanging out with all your celeb pals now. Oh, yeah. yeah. All all my fancy all my fancy friends from from Hollyweird and That's right, in California. 
Well, at any rate, on the 1 to 10 scale, I end up giving Battle of the Worlds a 6 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I, like I say, I don't think it's great, but I do think it is a pretty good little movie. Yeah, and I was going to go with a 5, 5 and a half. I understand. Um, I about the same. Um, they yeah. could have trimmed about 15 minutes out of the first half. And I it would have picked up a lot. Yeah. Because even well, the sequence where there's you think the, the ship is going to crash on um, the moon of Mars where... Where Mars, the moon has gone out of orbit, and they're right. trying to no go this way, and there's the argument, no, don't do that, you're sending them to their doom, and you think, <laughs> wow, that's got to be exciting, and it's that's boring because yeah. the talk yeah. just goes on and on and on, um, and at that point, I was starting to worry a little bit about where this thing was going to go, but then it tightens up near the end and finishes up, but it's still probably a five, five and a half, maybe. I understand. That's that that we're in this, we're in the same range. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it'll be. I'll be interested to see because I don't think if you've not seen uh, have you you've not seen Wild Wild Planet yet. No, and you've not seen Snow Devils. Nope. Okay, so uh, we've got a few more of his science fiction movies from the sixties that we can dig into, and I think that that will be fun. And I'm you know it's funny because I'm trying. I don't want to work ahead. Yeah. Because so many of these movies, I'm coming into cold, and I'm trying to keep that. So it can be difficult because there's a because the more I learn about it, the more I want to see all these movies, and I'm trying not to do that. So, well, I, I have to say that uh, it, it is possible for us to, at some point, even we can we can do. I mean, I've already done an episode on your the hunter from the future, mm-hmm. but it is possible for us to to do an episode ourselves because you weren't involved in that. That was right. with the that was with Troy and Jeff, mm-hmm. and it's been years now since I did that. So it's possible for us to even revisit ones that I've done with other people, because um, if uh, if you've seen your though, oh yeah, you? okay, your is kind of one of those weird ones that you know we were the the age we grew up it was kind of a cable staple there for mm-hmm. a long while when we were teenagers. So um, the thing is with his uh, science fiction films in the '60s, what you end up with is uh, Assignment Outer Space, Battle of the Worlds, this movie, and then you move forward a couple of years and you end up with uh, Wild Wild Planet. War of the Planets, War Between the Planets. Now, War Between the Planets is the one we've already done. War of the Planets is one we haven't done. I know. And I feel less bad about getting these confused. Exactly. There's no reason for you to feel bad. And then Snow Devils. So, really, there's six of them if you if you just go by that. So, we will eventually get to them all, but uh, the next time we cover one of his science fiction movies, I think we, we really ought to just do Wild Wild Planet. Uh, it's... Uh, it's so freaking much fun. Well, it's so weird. Good to me. It's so weird and so fun. But I do have another one of his films that, strangely enough, is available on Blu-ray that I would like to suggest that we cover next. Now, normally I know that we switch back and forth, and I chose this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm still going to let you choose, but I'm going to suggest... Uh, I don't think you own this on Blu-ray yet. But I'm going to suggest that uh, we try this one because it is on Blu-ray and because it is still in the 60s, but it's a different genre. Warner Archives has put The Golden Arrow out on Blu-ray. Okay. And it uh, starts Tab Hunter. Ah. So there. So take that and run with it. Well. It's from 1962, the year after he made this movie. And it's, uh, let's just say it's it, it's a fantasy film. It stars Tab Hunter, uh, Rosanna Podesta. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I think that you, I would love to see what your reaction to it is, and I can't wait to watch the Blu-ray myself. Well, that sounds good to me, and it gives me an excuse to buy a Blu-ray because it's been a long time <laughs> since I've broken down and bought one of those things. <laughs> I think I can probably remember how. Really? If, really? 
I've, I've got some instructions do, do, written do you, down. I, I was about to say, have you heard of this thing called the internet? What? Yes. Okay, what this is, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it offline, don't worry about it. You mean there's something you can use to buy things that you shouldn't buy? <laughs> buy things that you have to lie about to your spouse? No, yes. I, don't, I don't do that. Unfortunately, I no, can't. No, honey, I did not purchase. This was, I don't know how this got here. I get, Laura sees everything that comes in, much to my chagrin sometimes. Um, perhaps you get this question sometimes. Occasionally. I why, do you, why do you own this? Okay, well, <clears throat> I was very proud of this. About two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, this box came, and uh, I couldn't hide it fast enough, so Beth saw it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I was like, oh, take, take the bull by the horns and ripped it open right there. I pulled out, you know, the four or five Blu-rays that are inside. And uh, inside were, were several different Blu-rays. But on top was the thing that I was most excited about, which is the Blu-ray of the Devil Bat, the Bela Lugosi film. Mm-hmm. And I held it up and went, look, the Devil Bat. And I have to, I'm very happy to say, Beth first got this, because as soon as she saw that there was a box of Blu-rays, she got this look on her face like, oh, my God. But luckily, when I held up the Devil Bat, her face softened, and she went, oh, thank God I picked the right thing to wave in her face. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, a Bela Lugosi film. <laughs> You're doing a pretty nice job there. <laughs> it's just like, here, let me, let, me, let me save myself just a little bit of trouble here. <laughs> well, Laura will watch anything that I recommend. She trusts me, but I don't think Devil Bat would be one to, to grab her. So you... I don't know, man. There's a lot of movies, a lot of fun. I mean, you got to... You a really evil. Oh, I Bella love the Lugosi. devil bat. Yeah. She I, might. She might enjoy it. I don't. She know. might. There's some stuff I would get to get her to first before that. Yeah. I have to ease her into devil bat. But um, at any rate, I'm lucky at least that she puts up with it. <laughs> I mean, the last you know, I guess it's been three or four years since I bought a Blu-ray. But she was. She was. Oh, okay. really? It's been. Yeah, that long. it has. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's probably been three or four minutes since you bought a movie. No, that was, that was a book. <laughs> Jesus God. <laughs> well, at any rate. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing you any good by introducing you to this Matt Blake book, the science, the science fiction Italian style book, because, of course, now you're going to want that. Oh, I, I'm definitely going to want that. And then as I... Uh, to, to give you an audio description here of the room where we record, every oh, yeah. angle that you can turn your head, <laughs> I see stuff that I want, and, um, mm-hmm. or stuff that I have. It's one of yeah, one it's of the one two. Or the other. I either you yeah, I either, either, you I either have it or I want to have yeah. it. Yeah, I think true. my house is the same way for you. It's, it is. It yeah. is. I, even when I see the cats, it's like I'd like to have those cats. I, I'll make you a deal on those guys. <laughs> Sadly, I live with someone deadly allergic to cats. We love them, and yet can't live with the damn things. Well, so, gosh, just like mine. <laughs> <laughs> really? Are you, which one of you two have allergies? I don't even know about that. Uh, no, I'm just. They're they're little terrorists. <laughs> they're little terrorists. <laughs> well, at any rate, okay. If you're if you're if you're willing to go along with my BS, the next time we talk about. An Antonio Margariti film for the podcast. We will talk about The Golden Arrow from 1962. That sounds good. And um, hopefully we'll... We really do need to try to record more than one of these every six months. It would be a good idea. By the way, do you know who uh, Rosanna Podesta is? Um, who is she? Uh, well, um, she, well she, she's the co-star of The Golden Arrow. Right. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy uh, just searching for images of her on screen. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she pl- she was Helen in Helen of Troy. 
Uh, yeah. What was that? I just saw one title by Sex Diary. Um, yeah, yeah. There, uh, let's just say, let's just say, uh, she was gorgeous and had a figure to die for. The Sensuous Sicilian. Can we do that movie? (laughs) 1973. About Homo Eroticus. That. Sounds interesting as well. Does it? Though? The Sensuous Sicilian. Uh, I don't. I don't know if we. It's a. It's a comedy. Uh, well, with Gene Carlo Gianni. Oh, that might be worth watching. You're right. That's that's that might not be a bad call. Ooh. <laughs> we can just do the rabbit hole cast and just yeah. go. Well, from well one... the the, sens- the Sensuous Sicilian with Gene Carlo Gianni, uh, who's 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 great. I love I love him severely. But uh, an Italian comedy drama that's uh, an hour and 44 minutes, I think we'd probably be dragging a razor across our eyes. I think you might be yeah, right. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of Italian comedy. Yeah, it is. So, folks, next time, if you can play along with us, uh, seek out The Golden Arrow by Antonio Margheriti, and we will talk about that then. Thank you, once again, Mr. Hudson, for sitting down with me to talk about Antonio Margheriti. There is... Uh, there's the thing in the back of my head that makes me think that we should eventually like take a break and talk about just just something else, something to break up the margarita stuff. And maybe we could still do that. Well, I'd love that. I mean, that's when I started to appearing on this show so yeah. many years ago. We didn't really have a theme, and then suddenly no. we've locked into this. I remember we did the Night Stalker. We yep. did um, Escape or not Escape from New York. Uh, Salt Precinct, Salt 13. Precinct Thirteen, Rock and Roll High School. Yeah. You and know that, what? I tell you what. Instead of the next thing we do being the Golden Arrow, why don't we put our heads together between now and then and come up with something completely different to talk about for just one episode? How's that? That sounds good. As a matter of fact, why don't you lead the way on that? People, people, this is the sound of Rod turning loose of the reins, and let's hope the stagecoach stays on the road. (laughs) You know this is dangerous. (laughs) Yes, it is, because I'm letting you decide and I'm giving you free reign. This is going to be interesting. Well, I don't know. I'm, I don't want to decide just yet, but I immediately thought of something I'll do on a lot of Friday nights after the wife goes to bed, which is something I like to call vinegar syndrome blind by roulette. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, where's something I don't know anything about that I bought? <laughs> Let's see what this is. From three or four years ago, the last time I bought something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, from three or four years ago. Folks, thank you for listening to us, Two Lunatics. And I'm sorry for the rudeness that we obviously spew out constantly. Hope you'll join us again next time when we'll be talking about a mystery film. And then I swear to you, we'll get around to The Golden Arrow uh, by Antonio Margheriti. And before we go, Rod, I just want to say congratulations on doing a hundred of these things. Oh, yeah. Because I certainly haven't been on that many of them. But you've put in a lot of work to get to a hundred. You have actually been on uh, the... uh, You you are number two on the list of uh, most appearances on the podcast really by uh, troy troy yeah troy is definitely definitely the mm-hmm. winner by a long shot well, you can't get rid of that guy he's like a lamprey <laughs> he's he is a barnacle on the ass of podcasting i swear <laughs> to you son of a bitch will not go away no but troy and i of course you know have done uh, that long string of godzilla podcasts for the show mm-hmm. uh, i dragged him along to do you're the hunter from the future and the beyond and uh, several, you know, several other things along the way, and of course, right now we're doing our our long march through the Universal 1940s output, and which so, is a lot of fun. Uh, we we are having a blast doing mm-hmm. that, I have to say, and uh, we're getting a lot of good, good feedback about, uh, especially the Wolfman episode. I mean, hold that ghost. We got a lot of really great feedback on as well, and 
we have made the decision that we're going to let the show become the Sherlock Holmes cast there for a while. We're not going to dodge around the Sherlock Holmes films that Universal turned out in the 40s that really are kind of horror films. And so uh, going to get intriguing, going to get uh, going to get more uh, more odd as we go along. So. Well. Even though you didn't invite me to do those, I still <laughs> congratulate you. Well, on, and, and I'm honored to accidentally be on episode 100. <laughs> it was, it truly was a complete accident. I have so many, I have so many irons in the fire. It just depends on what order these things get recorded in. So, folks, thank you also for uh, listening to us babble about this movie. Uh, remember, it's out on YouTube if you want to go see it. I know we've spoiled the holy living hell out of it, but we still think it's actually worth seeing. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah, even at you know, a five out of ten, which would be, I guess, two stars out of four. It's, it's yeah. still worth seeing. There's stuff in there. There's definitely stuff in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's some, some really fun stuff in here. So, I am Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. And we will talk to you again soon. All right. See you soon. Well, soonish. Soonish. And we won't actually see you, but... But you'll hear us. Yes. In the years following the Second World War, two basic patterns began to influence the growing science of space travel. Rockets, or guided missiles, grew larger and larger. Atomic power plants grew smaller and smaller, compact enough to be contained in a submarine. Finally, in a rocket ship.